This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock? Tech story is front and centre. What will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. It feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioural challenges from the pandemic could linger for years on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, welcome. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. I'm Guy Johnson. I'm back alongside Alex Steele. It's a flying visit. She'll be here for a while and then she'll go off and do more important things. Talk about commodities, I don't know, but whatever. Um, <laughs> in terms of uh, equity markets, FTSE flat at the close today, 75.85. GSK under a little bit of pressure. Some of the energy stocks under a little bit of pressure. But broadly, European stocks are higher. The Nasdaq is up by 1.78%. Uh, so bouncing off the uh, the big sell-off uh, that we've seen over the last few days. In correction territory yesterday. Today, a move of 10% uh, off the highs. Uh, we have a mildly negative German 10-year. Yes, Alex mixed the German Bund going to positive over the last few days. But we're fading really that bummed move about now that. that she's back. Um, yeah, I'm, just, I'm trying to create a theme here. That I was gone. Guy has not the, forgiven me yet. The, I was the, sick, the world by the way. Moved, the world moved a long way a while, Alex Steele, while Alex Steele was gone. I'm not blaming her for this. I'm just, just pointing, pointing it out as a reality. Right. So we had, you know, the endoscopy one day, holiday the next day, sick the next two days, you know. But yeah, I, I would wake up and look at my news flow and I was like, oh my God, you got like Fed nominees, earnings, uh, high oil prices. I mean, you name it, it happened. And then I saw the Excel. zero bun yield and I was like, you must be joking. So you weren't just lounging around this whole time. I thought I, that's what I thought was happening. I, I mean, you were you were you were kind of taking it easy. Sure. Maybe you know, so manis, petties, massages beaches. Exactly. That's, that's not at all what happened. <laughs> that's sad. <laughs> Just ask my husband. Next time. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe no, can right. you shower one day, Alex? Thanks. We, we, we believe you. But but the world <laughs> moved a long way. Uh, and and Alex is back, so hopefully now we'll we'll return to to a to a world of calm. I don't think so. It looks like it's going to be a very bumpy year. Um, so markets certainly on the move today. What else do we need to know? Charlie Pellet, over to you. Thank you very much. And here's what's going on. Goldman Sachs, Fidelity, and Citigroup are among the firms asking London staff to return to their desks as finance firms start to push workers to return after the UK dropped its work-from-home guidance. Goldman employees are being asked to return in line with the government's announcement yesterday. Citigroup has emailed its London staff telling them to come into the office at least three days a week. Fidelity International is inviting its UK staff to return to the City of London now that the the government dropped its work-from-home guidance. Fidelity offices were open for skeleton staff throughout the pandemic. Ryanair Holdings is gaining confidence that travel will make a strong comeback this year as concern about the Omicron variant of COVID-19 fades in Europe. The region's biggest discount carrier will deploy more capacity this summer than in the pre-pandemic year of 2019 after cutting seats in January and February because of the new viral strain. This according to Eddie Wilson, head of the Irish group's main Ryanair unit. A survey finds more job seekers in Britain are looking to work remotely, indicating that the shift away from office work may outlast the pandemic. Indeed, that's a job search website, says 10% of its advertisements now offer remote work as an option at about 2.4% of all searches by potential candidates, up tenfold from 2019. Indeed, said Britain had one of the largest increases in remote working during the pandemic and in the share of vacancies offering it as an option. That is the latest from the news desk. Guy Johnson, back to you now in London. 
Charlie Pellet, thank you very much indeed. Another thing that has changed, the UK has dropped its uh, requirement for people to work from home. I have to say my train was a little busier this morning. London certainly feels a little busier this morning. It is Friday tomorrow, so I suspect everybody will be retreating back home uh, at that point. Um, Alex, I, I just in all seriousness, the, the last few days have been absolutely incredible. Uh, and it's fascinating to see kind of what expectations are going forward from here. We're now pricing in more than a 25 basis point hike in March. We've talked to a number of people over the last few days that are suggesting that we could see between two and eight hikes from the Fed. Now, that's a huge range. The market mm-hmm. is really struggling to price this all in. But there does seem to have been a shift in mentality. And I wonder whether this sticks. The, 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 sort of the technicians are getting excited. And, and there's talk that we're moving from buying dips to selling rips. Yep, that was Steve Shosnick uh, coming out with that interactive brokers, which is such an apropos kind of moment because yet you get this rally, but once you already hit the 200-day moving average and broke below it, it's no surprise that you'd see a rebound. I just wonder what that's going to mean uh, as we head into the close. Um, also, when you know, I my eyes started popping when it was like, oh, now we're talking 50 basis points increase in March, yep. like a surprise double hike. I mean, we're on a whole different level here, and I just wonder if the potential surprise now is that the Fed isn't that hawkish. They're still hawkish, but they're not that hawkish. Well, th- is that that's we get so, the next one? So a lot of people are saying you basically get a hawkish Fed up front and then you fade that move. As inflation starts mm-hmm. to come down later on in the year, you start to see a situation where the Fed can be a little easier. Uh, it's, it's already in some ways jawboned the markets, talked the markets into raising rates. That has the economic effect that they're looking for. Then they don't need to deliver as much further down the road. So is this an effort? We certainly saw this before the quiet period Friday. We certainly saw a huge amount of Fed speak that sounded very aggressive. And there is this kind of narrative going around that the Fed is basically trying to get the market to do its job for it. But nevertheless, there is as, you, as we've seen, market pricing shifting. We're now, I think, 27 basis points for the March meeting. Uh, I was listening to Mohamed El Arian a little bit earlier on. He was talking about the idea that the Fed next week, and we get the first Fed meeting of the year next week, the Fed should at that point say, I, given the inflationary backdrop, given what is happening with the economy, we should stop QE right now. Um, and But also, but I wonder, okay, go aggressive now, and then you're a little bit softer or more relaxed in the back half. Where is inflation coming down? I mean, that was what really struck me in bank earnings, because I missed all the minutia, which wasn't necessarily a bad thing. And I was just really struck on these comp costs. Um, and I understand you're saying, okay, some of them are going to be like a variable dividend, or like, here, we're going to give you a huge bonus, but next year, we maybe won't pay you that bonus. I get that. But still, junior banker pay continuing to rise. Procter & Gamble saying that they're able to pass on price increases and people are actually yep. buying the fancier, more expensive products. Yeah. Is that sustainable? Are wages going to keep up is the big question. The cost but are they going to squeezes. necessarily roll over? Well, maybe they don't roll over, but maybe they don't keep up. And that starts to take the wind out of the sails of the consumer. And I think that's certainly a narrative. A lot of uh, the, the savings have been already eaten up. And I think that's a narrative as well. But you just got I, for, just from a kind of mechanical mathematics point of view, you, you need to see prices continuing to rise. That is inflation. It's not a one-off price shock. Mm-hmm. It is ongoing. And at some point, we're going to get to the base effect, effect and that should in theory bring inflation down. It's still going to leave us with relatively elevated prices potentially, and that has an impact on consumer behavior, which is why some people are starting to talking about the fact that 
I, you, you could get a recession after this. Mm-hmm. Um, sure, of course, yeah. Fed tighten, Fed hike. Recession. Yeah, and, and that is that is certainly something that people are talking about. So it, it's re- I, I find the the kind of the story going forward here really difficult. We'll talk a little bit later on about what's happening in Russia. We were talking to Tim Ash oh a little gosh. bit earlier on. That was a conversation, wasn't it? That was I, from a little Blue scary. I'm not gonna, He's not like, gonna lie. we are heading for a serious war in Europe. Energy prices are going to be incredibly elevated. Putin is going to use this as a weapon. Expect things to get really yeah. difficult. And that, I, I, that was an eye-opener for and, me. And that part, quickly, I find interesting because he's like, with the energy transition and the rush to decarbonize, Putin's leverage with natural gas in Europe is only going to have a certain shelf life. So like, it's relevant this year, which is why like this time is going to be different. I thought that was a, was a really uh, interesting point. So wait, what did you do when I was gone? You just talked to yourself for like an hour? Yeah, pretty much, which is Sweet. which is not a good thing, to be honest. <laughs> it's not a good thing at all. Uh, no, we had a few we had a few people along for the ride, but I'm very very pleased to have you back, even if it is only for thirty minutes. You going to do a full show, full whole show tomorrow? Yeah, we'll is see. That, is that the plan? We'll see how okay. I feel. Yeah, maybe not. You know, we'll just we'll, we'll see up. how it goes. David Goodman sitting next to me. We're going to carry on the conversation. We're going to talk about the cost of living squeeze that is coming through in the UK. Retail sales numbers are out tomorrow. Uh, What is the Bank of England going to do with all of this? What does fiscal policy look like going forward? That conversation next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. Um, We have inflation running at a 30-year high. We are going to get retail sales data out tomorrow, which is likely to be affected uh, by Omicron. But savings rates have come down. The consumer is being squeezed. And that squeeze is likely to only get worse from here. Um, We're probably a couple of months away uh, from a serious, uh, as one Bloomberg story put it today, brutal cost of living crisis in the United Kingdom. Catastrophe. Catastrophe. Catastrophic. Yeah. Uh, Philip Aldrich and David Goodman wrote that piece. David Goodman joins us now in the studio. David, just to kind of talk us through what is happening here. We have inflation that is already super high, but we are in some ways protected from the worst of the inflation that we are going to see because we have this energy price cap that is going to come off very shortly. And as a result of which energy prices are going to surge and therefore inflation be pushed even higher than it is now. Yeah, I mean, it's scary. Well, inflation is the highest in three decades in the UK already. And April is the month when things are going to get worse. The price cap on energy changes then. People are saying prices can go up about 50%, which is obviously a huge increase in, in people's energy bills. Also got a tax hike coming down the line. That's coming through in April um, on, on payroll. So again, two can things. Can that still happen? Re- can, can, can the tax hike on payroll still happen right now? Well, I think it looks like it will do. There's been some opposition from within the Tory party and ideas that they should postpone it. I, I mean, but obviously, it's such a huge amount that they're raising and it's going towards NHS and, and social care that they feel like they kind of have to keep it going. So, yeah, I mean, I think that that probably will happen. I think what the government may have to do is find some other ways to help address this crisis because otherwise it could get really nasty for people very quickly. In terms of where this leaves the Bank of England as well, the Bank of England clearly has an inflation mandate. We are way away from that. We are super high at the moment. We're we're many orders of magnitude higher than where we should be. But on the other hand, there is the possibility that we are going to be seeing a slowing economy as a result of what you've just laid out. How does the the Bank of England navigate this, this high inflation, slowing economy, but inflation also potentially falling as well, but nevertheless prices remaining relatively elevated. Yeah, I mean, it's really tough. And I think that 
obviously by come April they're already forecasting six percent inflation, which is three times their target, and yeah. they can't really ignore that. They can they keep on saying they have said, look, there's not that much we can do about the energy crisis. That's that's kind of not within our remit to fix. But that the same was true before, and they, and they still hike. So I think they're going to have to hike rates fairly quickly this year. I mean, it's just not. Obviously, if you've but got rates like, of 0.25% and 6% inflation, you kind of feel like you have to act. But is it going to be a bit different than maybe what we're looking at for the Fed? So the Fed maybe goes more aggressive now and then can chill a little bit later. Is it going to be semi-aggressive and just really short-lived, like a one and two and done kind of thing? That's not what the market's saying. I think the market are expecting a series of hikes. I think one thing Andrew Bailey said yesterday, which is very interesting, he talked about the inflation picture and he talked about the the kind of gas futures curve looking more steep and how that's going to kind of be more longer lasting. But he also talked about the cost of living crisis itself and said that could hurt demand, that could push unemployment up and that could eventually bring down inflation. So it's kind of, I mean, I think it's something that's on their minds. And I think, I'm not sure this will have an impact in February, but I think as we get throughout the further and further through the year, it may be something that increasingly weighs on them. What does the consumer balance sheet look like right now? How protected will the consumer be by savings? Now, obviously, this is all fairly regressive in terms of the effect that it has. Just, i.e., the most sort of needy within society are going to be hit the hardest because the savings rate story is skewed. But but just kind of talk me through what, what the balance sheet looks like and how stable the consumer is at the moment. Well, I think those aggregate saving numbers maybe lot people into a false sense of security because obviously people who could save during the pandemic did and really built up their savings. I saw some research last week that was saying I think 25% of people didn't save anything at all, mm. which kind of gives you an idea of, of where it is. And the people we spoke to for our cost of living story today, I mean, there's millions of people like them who don't have any savings, who are literally down to their last you know, pound, two pounds, six pounds in their bank account. And yeah. that's obviously a real, a real problem. And I think that's the, the issue with the saving story is that it was just, as you say, it was so skewed that it yeah. kind of yeah, made a difference. Yeah, it, it, it is centred at the at the upper end of the income scale. Uh, David, great piece. I get, it played really well on the Bloomberg today. So many people reading, so many people talking about it. Thank you very much indeed. Bloomberg's David Goodman. This is The Cable. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. This is going to be a proper war if it happens. I mean, Putin is going to want to do some, you know, a very serious military operation to force the Ukrainians to concede a new treaty in terms of their relationship with with Russia, right? So, I mean, this is a major conflict. That was Tim Ash of Blue Bay Asset Management delivering a really stark assessment of the relationship between the West and Russia and how he thinks the Ukraine conflict is going to evolve and why this time it really is different. You look at the market, though, the market's not even really blinking uh, at this point. Damien Sassauer uh, covers all things emerging markets for Bloomberg Intelligence. Um, hey, Damien, it was a really stark interview that Tim gave. Um, where do you think we would see any market pricing of, of geopolitical risk? Oh, I love Tanash. I respect him immensely. And I don't think he's underestimating the importance and the significance of what's going on in Eastern Europe. I mean, Ukraine must really wish they'd never given up their nuclear arsenal back in 1994. I mean, that's just how serious we are here, Alex. So in terms of market response, I mean, look, there has been a market response, right? The ruble, I'm one month at the money, uh, implied volatility on the ruble is <laughs> has, is basically up uh, something on the order of 50% over the last 30 days. So, you know, clearly markets are paying attention. And look, mm-hmm. 
you know, if you just look at some of the recent rhetoric, uh, like the Central Bank of Russia basically cracking down on crypto, that means that Russia is preparing for sanctions from the West. It means that they're concerned that the ruble is going to lose its standing amongst locals, that they're going to shift to dollars or other hard currencies, or crypto for that matter, and that'll lead to capital outflows and further undermine the currency. So certainly they're concerned. Certainly the ruble's reacting to this, and I think markets are taking note. In terms of what happens next, if, if we're heading in this direction, do you think that we find a situation where companies start to, to repatriate cash from Russia? I, we've already seen most large financial companies downgrading their operations in Russia really quite significantly. Um, do you think that gets completed, that job? Do you think basically businesses are now going to start pulling out? Well, I think really what's – okay, so take a step back, Guy. I mean, when we've talked about this, I think, you know, the most likely scenario, I mean, what a shock that, you know, President Biden actually said it on air yesterday during his press conference. But we Minor talked excursion about, is, is what you're talking about. He basically I mean, we said, talked about a, a, a sort of a formal annexation of the Donbass, right, something along the lines of what we saw in 2014 when Russia occupied Crimea and eastern Ukraine. And basically Obama did have little response to that. And I think really, quite frankly – that's what Putin's playing on here, the perception of weakness he, he um, has, reinforced by America's embarrassing cut and run in Afghanistan, right? I mean, he, it's all about U.S. credibility here. So, you know, if you just kind of look at all that and take it in and of itself, Russia still provides Europe with 50 percent of its gas and 25 percent of its oil, right? So Putin certainly has some leverage there. And, you know, Europe's dependence on Russia can't be ignored, especially in light of the fact that, you know, we're seeing a very cold winter and all that other stuff. But if you want to look at what the market reaction might be, if we see DS escalation here you know stocks like luke oil and Spurbank are going to rise the most but if we see things escalate adidas you like that pronunciation adidas no, airbus no. bp these are the companies that are most at risk why because as russia i mean because the, the natural response will be russia will be providing less gas to to europe and so those large industrial kind of companies are going to suffer the most Biden has clarified, he was speaking at uh, an infrastructure meeting at the White House a little earlier, any units across the Ukraine border is an invasion. So it's, well, it's, I mean, I'm hearing that, and look, this is unsubstantiated guy, I'm hearing there's already been, you know, some conflict along the border, snipers yeah. and what have you. Obviously, it's unconfirmed, but it's already happening, you know, mm -hmm. so... So, look, you know, far be it for me to say what Biden really intended yesterday. I think his messaging has been, you know, opaque, to say the least, on this issue. And so, you know, I think that's what markets are really playing on here, the right. fact that the U.S. really doesn't have a response. So how do you um, – what? Go ahead. Sorry. That's good. I, feel, I feel I should let you speak while you're here, so you should, you should <laughs> I mean, go for it. it's only for four more minutes, and then, and then you can talk. It'll be great. Um, hey, so, Damien, l let's just play this out a little bit. Where does the contagion – spread. I mean, the scenario that Tim Ash was pointing out was, I mean, a war is very different than what may be priced into the currency volatility. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, no, absolutely. Look, I, I, I again, I don't believe that Russia is going to outright invade Ukraine. I, I mean, look, I could easily be wrong here, but certainly offensive ceasefire violations. And by offensive, I mean, you know, what I was talking about, little incursions or, or, or kind of conflicts along the border, the cyber attacks we're seeing. And certainly Russia's got 100,000 troops along the border. They will maintain a significant military presence along the border just to keep the threat of incursion real. So, you know, that's not changing. And I think that's where we are. And look, you know, I mean, yeah. look, the ruble hit an all-time high of 8270 back in June 2016. We're currently at what? I don't know, 7654, something along those lines. We're not far from that level. And I think Russia is going to need to raise rates and protect its currency if we indeed see more of the same. In fact, the okay. Russian front end is pricing in 
uh, terminal policy rate of 10%. We're at 85 now, so more rate hikes potentially. If you're Hungary, if you're Poland, if you are Central and Eastern European uh, and you are looking at what is happening to your East, how are you planning for this? What should you be thinking about in terms of the economic impact that we could see here? In a word, inflation, right, Guy? I mean, you're going to be thinking that inflation is going to rise off the back of this. And look, inflation is already running red hot in Eastern Europe, more so than in pretty much any other region across the whole of emerging markets, save Latin America. So, you know, you're going to expect more of the same. You're going to have to see more rate hikes out of Hungary, the Czech Republic. I think Hungary, I think Orban just announced he's going to be meeting with President Putin in Russia on the 1st of February. So you can kind of see the dynamic that's going on. Certain Eastern European countries are pivoting toward Russia. Certain countries are pivoting more toward the West. Mm -hmm. But inflation, (laughs) you know, kind of circumvents all of that. It's going up and it's certainly going to impact a lot of the local currencies and they're going to need to raise rates in response. I don't feel good, guys. I, I, I do not feel good about this conversation. Neither do I. This and Tim Ash, is, it, it, it's not making me feel very positive, and it does feel more imminent than maybe one would have thought just a few days ago. Absolutely. Um, Damien, always a pleasure. I think we're going to be talking to you plenty over the next few weeks by the sounds of things. We'll see ultimately what happens. Bloomberg's Damien Sasa uh, on what is happening uh, with the story around Ukraine uh, and the potential impact around the world. Um, okay, that uh, that wraps things up for, for us. Like, not for me, for us. Uh, Alex is going to be leaving us now. She's off to talk about commodities on Bloomberg Television. Um, to which be fair, is very there has been a move. tied to this story. Sorry? There has been a very big move in the commodity market. There has. You need to you need to catch up to that. And, and I think this is a perfect opportunity for you to go and do that. That was so nice, Guy. Thank you. That's that's me being British, just, yeah, just to be enough. clear. <laughs> uh, anyway, I will be persistent. Uh, go, go and watch Alex. If, if you are in the office and you can do that, Commodities Edge is coming up very, very shortly. I will be continuing. We'll talk about the market action. Uh, Kriti Kupta will be joining us. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, 5.30 in the city of London. You are listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. I'm Guy Johnson Alex Steele, having departed to go uh, back to Bloomberg Television for Commodities Edge, which we've been really looking forward to uh, all day. Oil prices, gas prices everything really on the move at the moment so she's got plenty to talk about let me give you a quick idea of what the price action looks like right now uh, after significant selling that took the nasdaq into a correction uh, today we get a bounce uh, we are up by 1.7 nearly 1.8 percent on the nasdaq the s&p is up by 1.3 percent uh, we are we are certainly getting a response to the price action over the last few days, and that has been to buy back in. But year to date, the Nasdaq is still down by 7%. And as I say yesterday, uh, down uh, into correction territory, I have a move off its highs of 10%. The FTSE 100 today finishing flat. Uh, energy stocks were under a little bit of pressure. You saw the GSK story uh, reverberating today, uh, i.e. Unilever walking away from buying GSK's consumer business, consumer health business. So that stock was down. But it was it was the commodity stocks that really weighed on London today. The CAC up by three-tenths of 1%. The DAX up by six-tenths of 1%. Uh, the Bund returned to being negative today. We're down by a negative around two basis points. But still, uh, we are going to be watching very carefully as we track towards the Fed next week what exactly 
uh, rates are going to be doing. Uh, commodities certainly are on the move today. Actually, we do have a bid into the oil market, which is interesting as well. Uh, Brent crude trading up another half of 1%, just shy of 90 bucks a barrel now. 88.90 is where we are trading. We'll come back. We'll talk more about the markets in a moment. Kriti Gupta standing by in New York to give us an update. But first, let's get a headline update with Charlie Hi, Thank you very much, Guy Johnson. Happy Thursday to you. Britain's productivity performance trailed behind almost all of its group of seven peers between the Brexit referendum and the pandemic, extending a malaise that has hobbled the UK economy for over a decade now. According to international comparisons published by the Office for National Statistics, output per hour work grew by less than 0.6% a year on average from 2016 when Britons voted to leave the European Union through 2019, the year before the virus struck. Only Italy put in a weaker performance. Well, how do you feel about heading back to the office? Goldman Sachs, Fidelity and Citigroup are among the big firms asking London staff to return to their desks as finance firms start to push workers to return after the UK dropped its work-from-home guidance. Goldman employees are being asked to return in line with the government's announcement yesterday. Citigroup has emailed its London staff telling them to come into the office at least three days a week. Well, how soon until this plays out in the United Kingdom? Amazon is introducing its first physical fashion store. It'll be called Amazon Style. It will open later this year in the greater Los Angeles area. In a statement, Amazon said its machine learning algorithms produce tailored real-time recommendations for each customer as they shop. That is the latest from the news desk. Guy Johnson, back to you now in London. Really thought about that name, didn't they? Amazon Style. Nailed that one. (laughs) They really did. On the other hand, Amazon Go probably took a little bit more work. Absolutely. There's a theme developing here. Charlie, thank you very much indeed. Let's get back to the markets and talk about what is happening. Um, The S&P currently trading up by 1.29%. The Nasdaq up by 1.77%. Jeremy Grantham, uh, the famed investor who for decades has been calling market bubbles, uh, he was talking to Eric Schatzker a little bit earlier on here at Bloomberg. uh, And he's talking about the fact that we are about to see a major major correction. He talks about U.S. stocks being in a super bubble. um, And he's basically saying he predicts, he thinks that the S&P will return to its long-term trend. That takes us down around 45%, takes us to a level of around 2,500. Just to recap, the S&P is currently trading today at 45.91. We're up by 1.3%. Bluebird's Critty Gupta joining us now to talk about the market action. Critty, we've seen uh, significant selling over the last few days, particularly in tech stocks. Today we get a bounce. What are people saying about this bounce? Yeah, well, they're saying that it's pretty natural considering that the Nasdaq did hit that 10% correction. This is something that we did not get in 2021. We didn't get that technical correction. And this is something that also a lot of people were calling for at the end of 2021, that January was going to be the start of a bout of volatility. Naturally, that's exactly what we got. So now it kind of seems like there's a little bit more of that buy the dip mentality. Whether the sell-off continues is largely dependent not specifically on what yields do, but how many more rate hikes are actually priced into the market. Right now, you are looking at four rate hikes priced into the market. If you start to see more or if you start to see uh, perhaps a 50 basis point rate hike priced into the market, which, by the way, we are not there yet for March, that's really something that would kind of tank the markets more. At least that's what I'm hearing from trading desks. In terms of kind of what comes next, 
Are we just waiting for the Fed now? Is that the story? We wait for the Fed. We see what the Fed says. Um, the the market, if you look at the rates market, the forward curve, it's it's now pricing in 27 basis points for the Fed to hike in March, i.e. we are north of a 25 basis point hike. The expectation is the Fed is going to be more aggressive. Do we need to wait now for the Fed to tell us what is happening, to give us that press conference from Jay Powell before the market has a clear sense of direction from here? Uh, so yes and no. On the yes hand, I mean, obviously, rates are going to be far more a bigger driver than uh, geopolitical tensions or arguably even the pandemic, because there does seem to be a little bit of COVID fatigue in the market. So the Fed is really going to be that main driver. The no side of it is simply that there are other factors driving it, and that could actually pose risk. Oil prices are going to be a really big one. Traditionally, when you see the stock market rally, Oil prices are also rallying, too. Fundamentally, that means the economy is growing, demand is growing, and therefore it's fair to bet on the future prices of oil and therefore stock market. Right now, you're seeing the inverse happen. As oil prices get higher and higher, that's actually a bad thing for the stock market because it means that the supply chain issues, well, they persist. And there's only so much that the Fed can do. Look around the world at what you're seeing. A lot of these EM central banks, emerging market central banks, Mexico, Russia, they were way early on actually starting the rate hikes and tackling that inflation that was rampant within their own countries. Look at inflation now. A couple of hikes later, it's still there. So that's going to be the concern when it comes to the Fed and tackling some of these commodity prices that are still marching higher, oil especially because – a lot of the expectation was that the oil price rise would be met with OPEC+. Yeah. Plus, but now there are concerns that, well, they just don't have the capacity to meet what the, the market requires. Is, is the oil price now driving the narrative? I, is it higher oil prices driving higher rates, driving lower stocks? That's, I think, exactly what it is. And if you actually look at the correlations to, to really nerdify it, if we can get nerdy even more, uh, is that you are seeing yields and oil rise together very quickly. Part of that is going to be the fact that yields are pricing in what's going on in the forward rates market. You mentioned uh, them pricing in 27 basis points for the March hike. That's going to be part of the equation. But as soon as you hit uh, the 2% level on the 10-year yield, that's really when commodities kicks into high gear. Because a lot of people are saying the Treasury sell-off will only go as far as 2% before it reverses back. Oil markets largely saying it's only going to go up to about $100 a barrel. But even that is a pretty pretty huge number to keep in mind of for, for all risk assets. Is the sense now that the earnings season doesn't deliver the boost that we were hoping for? Certainly the, the financials have not lived up to expectations. That's a big part of it. I mean, it depends on sector to sector. But if there is a common thread here, I mean, we heard airline earnings. I mean, you were a transport reporter. This is your bread and butter. Uh, We got airline earnings this morning, and they're still saying that Omicron, the variant, is kind of cut in to their capacity. They're not even talking about passenger demand anymore. They're talking about simply capacity operating the flight. We know United has reported, I think the last report they gave was 3,000 people had called in sick at one point uh, due to COVID. So once again, it's not just about uh, getting that passenger demand. It's actually about operating costs and labor. And that's going to be something that you're hearing across, across various sectors. Critty, it's always a pleasure to catch up. Such useful insight. Thank you very much indeed. Bluebox Critty Gupta uh, on what is happening in the markets. As I say, bounce back today. NASDAQ up by 1.8%. The S&P uh, trading up by one25 This is Bluebox. 
This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, welcome back. You're listening to The Cable. We are live on DAB Digital Radio. As I was indicating earlier on in the programme, the Nasdaq yesterday fell from its high in November by 10%. That took it into correction territory. Is this going to continue? We don't know. But what impact is that going to have actually on the Nasdaq itself, uh, the company that runs the market and all the data that goes around with it? Uh, Alex and I earlier caught up with Adina Friedman. Uh, She is the Nasdaq president and CEO. Well, first of all, I think it's important to recognize that when we look at when I look at the capital markets, I always look at long term performance. And of course, the technology industry has always and will continue to be a, a you know a long-term performer that I think that is uh, is a bright spot in our economy. But I think that in the in the very short term, we're we're dealing with a lot of a you know, very dynamic environment, both in terms of the, the political environment, in terms of the economic environment, and then you overlay that the need for uh, the central banks around the world to make some adjustments to their monetary policy. And I think that is really what's creating a lot of volatility. It's you know investors don't like uncertainty. Uh, and right now, it's really these, the adjustments that seem to be forthcoming um, or at least being predicted around some monetary policy changes that I think are creating that, un- that unpredictability for investors. In terms of the capital markets and what that means in terms of raising capital, uh, we continue to have an incredibly strong pipeline of companies that will be that are seeking to tap the public markets. If you look at last year, we had about, you know, there were about 133 filings um, at the SEC for companies looking to come to market on NASDAQ. And when we look at that same number at this time this year, it's double that. It's in, it's about 250. So we have uh, we have a very, very strong pipeline of companies looking to tap the public markets. The volatility in the markets might put a pause on that. But at the end of the day, when they the windows will open, and I think we will see a very active issuance environment as we get, get into 2022. Let's talk a little bit about what happens in the near term, though. Do you expect uh, a pickup in volatility. What does that mean for volumes? Do you expect in the near term, to Alex's point, that we are going to see some of these uh, these listings being pulled? Just as we as we watch the dust settles, how long do you think that process is going to take? Well, I, we've seen periods of volatility uh, over since for many years now. But I, I would actually you know point to since the beginning of the pandemic, because different industries are affected by the pandemic in different ways. Um, you overlay that on top of that, a very, very significant monetary action that was taken at the beginning of the pandemic. And then you overlay on top of that, um, the, the the global supply chain challenges that we've had that I think have been exacerbated by the pandemic. And you create a very dynamic environment. We've had episodes and periods of volatility throughout the last two years. And we're going into 2022 with, with a new period of that. But we've also seen you know, periods of great performance. We've seen more in um, more involvement from individual investors in the markets than we've ever experienced. Um, and so you have this incredibly engaged investor base, a very dynamic in, um, economic environment, and you have the potential for changes in monetary policy. And I think those three things are just creating a, a more volatile environment right now. But I also, you know, we've been managing through that since the beginning of the pandemic, and we've had record number of new listings and capital raised to the public markets. We had, if you look at the U.S. in total, it was almost $300, trillion, uh, $300 billion raised um, through the, into the public markets last year, $180 billion on NASDAQ. So mm-hmm. um, we do feel that there continues to be a very active and exciting pipeline of companies looking to come. And, and that's what it brings you to the report that the Nasdaq published. Like I mentioned, you can check it on LinkedIn page. The capital markets can really help the shift to sustainable and decarbonized uh, global economy. What are you noticing in that as ESG is now the buzzword literally everywhere? 
It is definitely the topic of conversation in most meetings I've had. I, I, I do think that it's really important to recognize that when we think about you know, the environmental, social, and governance impact that companies can have, it's very, very significant. And the financial system and the capital markets can be a great solutions provider to corporates as they're making their transitions. The transition to a net zero carbon economy is uh, is a very, very significant undertaking. There's an estimate that in order to be able to meet the Paris Accord um, obligations in 2050, we're going to need something like yep. $150 trillion of investment. So, that is why the capital markets play such an important role in helping companies yep. transition through that. Adina Freeman, the CEO of the NASDAQ, talking to Alex and I a little bit earlier on. Up next, we're going to take you back to Washington, D.C. Uh, the president's celebrating one year as president. We'll hear from Joe Biden in a moment. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. If any, any assembled Russian units move across the Ukrainian border, that is an invasion. But it will be met with severe and coordinated economic response that I've discussed in detail with our allies, as well as laid out very clearly for President Putin. But there is no doubt, let there be no doubt at all, that if Putin makes this choice, Russia will pay a heavy price. The President of the United States, Joe Biden, speaking at the White House earlier on today, clarifying what an invasion of Ukraine is and the response that will be generated from such a logistical move by Vladimir Putin. Uh, there was some confusion after yesterday's press conference. Uh, a long press conference delivered by President Biden yesterday to mark his one-year anniversary as president. Um, the, the narrative was that, well, if they do this, then we respond this way. If they do something more serious, then we respond that way, i.e. there was a scale of responses that may come from the United States. Significant damage limitation post that from the White House, trying to clarify exactly what the president meant. In some ways, what he's talking about is the situation on the ground. Uh, and President uh, Putin is going to be paying attention to this. What kind of a response uh, can he expect from the Americans is something that will be folded into his calculation. The president of the United States, Joe Biden, trying to clarify that for him this afternoon. You put boots on the ground, you're going to get a big response. That is an invasion. But is it boots on the uh, on the ground with with, uh, with with Russian badges on their arms? I, again, there there is ambiguity. It's a really difficult situation uh, for everybody to try and deal with. Emily Wilkins joins us now, congressional reporter uh, from Washington. Emily, just kind of talk us through what has happened in Washington D.C. today. There are a number of different ways of tearing apart the press conference yesterday and looking at its component parts. But let's deal with the uh, the Russian risk first of all. Has there been significant damage limitation going on? I mean, the whole goal for President Biden when it came to negotiating with Russia was to do so from the point of you do not want to invade Ukraine because if you do invade Ukraine, you will be facing uh, immediate uh, sanctions, immediate punishment. We will make you regret that decision. That's sort of been the message from the White House. And in order to effectively convey that message, you can't have something like yesterday where Joe Biden said that, you know, the allies have yet to incur 
agree how to hold Moscow accountable over a minor incursion. And you saw that in a response immediately from Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky, who said that, you know, there are no minor incursions of small nations, that that any sort of action. So you do see Biden immediately walking that back. You saw uh, the White House communications team trying to walk that back before Biden was even done with his presser yesterday. So there was an immediate sense that he had misspoken. I, I think the question becomes, how does this play into the larger narrative that the White House is trying to put forward? I mean, certainly it, it raises questions about what the U.S.'s stance is. It could potentially signal to Vladimir Putin that maybe uh, the Western allies are not as united on this as Biden would have previously led them to think. I mean, one of the big things here is that usually moves like this, uh, you know, what the U.S. would do response, those aren't really telegraphed in advance. Uh, and so there's sort of a, a, the opportunity um, to kind of show that it is stronger than, than yeah. it might be otherwise. And, and this was kind of a slip here. Let's talk about the domestic agenda as well and try and figure out what is happening here. Build Back Better has been a a huge part of Joe Biden's first year in office. He, he wants to pursue this. He wants to do more. He wants to spend more on the U.S. economy, particularly in key areas uh, like early learning. Yesterday, he admitted the kind of the, the political reality around it. And that was we're going to have to probably break this into its component parts in order to get some of it passed. Uh, Christian Sinema, uh, Joe Manchin, uh, both have, have held this up. What is what is going to come out of breaking this bill up into its component parts? What's what makes it and what doesn't? So there are lots of questions about that. I mean, two things that Biden suggested might not actually make it are the expanded child tax credit, which has been huge for Democrats. They have ran on that. They have promoted that. They have touted that. But you saw Senator Joe Manchin raise some concern, saying that the number of people that were receiving this benefit, that needed to be narrowed down, that people were getting it whose incomes meant that they they really did not need that assistance from the government. Another interesting thing, as you kind of think here about what breaking this bill down actually means. I mean, remember, Democrats are using this very specific process known as reconciliation that allows them to move the bill with no Republicans. But they've kind of set it up so that if they wind up breaking this bill down into smaller parts, they might not be able to use that process. That was something that Speaker Nancy Pelosi pointed out to reporters today over questions about how this bill might be taken apart. And I think a lot of it really does depend on where Senator Joe Manchin stands, where Senator Kirsten Senma stands. Um, Manchin was telling reporters uh, just a little bit ago that he needed to start from scratch, that his previous offer to the White House that he made in December was off the table. Um, I mean, there's certainly things that Joe Manchin wants to see in this bill. He has talked about his support for provisions that support nuclear energy. Um, He has talked about his support for things like universal pre-K. There's definitely things in here that Democrats could get to 50 votes on, that threshold that they need to pass this reconciliation bill. I think it's just a question of what it looks like, because for a while it seemed like the bill was being tweaked to accommodate the things that Manchin and Sinema wanted in the bill. And then suddenly at the end of last year, Manchin was like, nope, can't move forward with this. So I think there's still a lot of questions, even within the Democratic Party, as to what Manchin wants and what can actually pass. Emily, we'll leave it there. Great stuff. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, Bloomberg Congressional Reporter Emily Wilkins joining us from Washington, D.C. I've got about a minute left. Let me just recap kind of where the price action is right now because it's been so bumpy over the last couple of days. 
Currently, you've got a NASDAQ that is just beginning to fade off its highs. Uh, you've got an S&P that's just beginning to fade off its highs. The NASDAQ is up by 1.5%. The S&P uh, up by 1.1%. Keep an eye on the price action uh, as we go towards the close today. The technicians, those that follow technical analysis, are getting very excited at the moment. Uh, and I'm starting to hear commentary around the idea that rather than buying the dip, which has been kind of working forever uh, in these markets, may have started to turn. People are now talking about selling the rip, i.e. if the market moves higher, you want to sell into that strength rather than the other way around. We'll see. I think this is going to be a bumpy and interesting ride. We're heading towards the Fed next week. Uh, I think we've got a lot of bumps to go between now and then. Hope you enjoyed the show. This was The Cable. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.